What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Sports. From State Street and the First Midwest Bank Studio, this is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. WMVP Chicago. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the ground at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000. Glad that you're with me here on this Tuesday night. We have uh, Tales from the Hood as we redraft 1989. Looking forward to that coming up at uh, 830 and we are talking to you about the Last Dance documentary right here on ESPN 1000 because some juicy news has come out of it from Horace Grant and his thoughts on uh, what happened with the Last Dance. And uh, we've been talking about that here on, in our first hour. So Jeff Dickerson and I got a chance to talk to uh, NBA champion with the Chicago Bulls, B.J. Armstrong. And B.J. Armstrong now is a player agent uh, with Derrick Rose and a number of others. We talked to B.J. about this documentary, The Last Dance, and we asked him, man, did you know this documentary would look like this once the finished product was done? Well, uh, thanks for having me on first. Um, but the answer is no. I, I had no idea um, of what it was going to turn out. And, um, you know, and the one thing is I, I was asked, I was like, how, you know, is this going to be like an hour or two? And they were like, no, it's going to be like 10 episodes. I was like, 10 hours of, <laughs> for a documentary. So I, th- I thought, wow, that's a, that's a big documentary. And now in looking at it, I'm going, you probably need 10 more hours just to kind of get an idea of trying to cover so much material. But uh, it's been great, um, you know, watching it. It's been uh, action-packed. I think they've done an excellent job. So, BJ, we got to fast forward to you as a Hornet because to see you so intense out there, it's not necessarily revenge against the Bulls. It just you were just feeling the moment. It was that was one of my favorite parts of the documentary, just seeing you in that Hornets uniform, saying, "You know what? I'm uh, now it's it's me. I'm going to control this game." What are your memories of of playing Bulls after being with the championship team for so long? Well, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of funny to, when you're watching that, you know, it's really uncomfortable, at least for me, to watch yourself on television. And I never thought that it'd be 20, 25 years later, you're, you're talking about something that happened. Um, but out of just respect to how we played and how you grew up in that era, that's how you played, right? You, you played to win. Um, you competed, whether it was against your friends or former teammates or what have you. And uh, I just wanted to respect the game and respect the fact that you want to come out and you want to play hard. And, and I had learned so many of those lessons, you know, there when I played in Chicago. And, and it only felt natural that, you know, if you have an opportunity to win the game, and uh, you, you go for it. And um, every game I came out, you know, I, I tried my best. And that's all I wanted to do was always try my best to compete, play hard, and uh, really just respect the game of basketball. And that's how we all played then. So, I just felt like any other player at that time in that era that you're going to come out and play hard and uh, and lay it out there all on the line. You can never make everybody happy, BJ. We all know this. But, I mean, you know, you lived that first 3 P. You were there every single day. 
Do you feel like the story they've told so far in The Last Dance, the way they've presented it, is is pretty accurate and really tells people what it was like being on that team and around that team in those years? Well, I, I really do. And, uh, and, and from this standpoint, is you, you have this figure, right? You have this polarizing figure of Michael Jordan. And that is the, you know, that's the star of the story. And um, when you see someone achieve that level of success, you know, the question is, what's the motivating factor here? And here's an opportunity for all of us, even those of us who play with him, to peek behind the curtain to say, what would allow someone to be that driven? You know, he achieved everything you could achieve individually, right? He was MVP of the league. He's an all-star. He's defensive player of the year. Um, he won championships. But then he had this drive to continue every single day, whether that was in practice, games, and whatever he was doing. So I think from that standpoint, you know, you just want to see what was – you know, what was in his background or what thing that we can all gather to say, what allows someone to achieve at that level, that that person was that driven, that determined, that committed to the game. And uh, from that standpoint, I think it's been great because you're starting to see from the man himself, let him tell the story of what was his driving force to want to achieve that level of greatness because you don't see that often. BJ, as an agent, you're working with modern players every day. I'm wondering how today's players view this documentary. There is one way to play the game now, but in your era, it was totally different, especially watching the Bulls. So how do they look at um, the way the game was played and just the whole dynamic of the Bulls championship? Well, that, that's been the – to me, that's been one of the greatest things is for me to speak to the youth today and working and doing what I'm currently doing and. And one of the things with all of my clients, when I get a chance to speak with them, and even my son, who's 19, the one thing that's striking to them is, man, did you guys really play that physical? And and it's like, I didn't think twice about it. That's just kind of how we played. But they were like, every single one of them have commented about the physicality of the game and, you know, how tough of a game that was. It's a, it was a different time. It was a different era. Those rules were different. And uh, it's really striking to them that, you know, that's how we played. That's, those were fouls. Those were – it was kind of be, to be expected when you, you know, as a guy, you, you cut through the lane, you were going to get hit. If you drove to the basket, you were going to get fouled. And uh, it wasn't personal. It was just the way the game was played. But every single one of my clients have all commented about the physicality of the game, which that's just the game that we played, and that's how you played it back then. Does anyone in the current game, BJ, have the leadership style that Michael had? I mean, holding people to a certain level, and if they didn't reach that level, obviously there was there was going to be some trouble at practice and, and, and behind the scenes. Is anyone like that in today's NBA? Well, you know, it's like comparing this generation to you know to that generation. You know, it's a, it's a different time, right? And uh, you have to put it in its context. Um, things that you could say to one another back then may not be something that you can do in the work environment and workplace today. And that uh, doesn't make it right or wrong. That was just a different time. So um, I, I think the players are driven, but it's just a different era. The rules are different. The, the way the players play the game is different. And, um, you know, Michael was a, he was a unique player and he was very unique because of this single minded focus that he had. And, um, 
you know, the, the, the thing that we always knew about him was, you know, there was no agendas other than to win. And, you know, there's a lot of distractions today, right? We didn't have to deal with the Internet. We didn't have to deal with cell phones. We didn't have to deal with, you know, social media, so forth and so on. So, um, you know, who knows how things would have been if we were in this era with all of the distractions that, you know, the youth and young players have today. But back then, um, we just saw a man that was committed. He made a commitment with his life to the game, to his profession, and he tried to perfect that as best he could. So uh, it just, you know, it's a little different time, and uh, you have to really put things in its proper context. BJ, many Bulls fans on shows that I've hosted over the years believe that you should have been the heir apparent to Jerry Krause as someone that was a special assistant to Jerry Krause uh, in that era. Um, do you believe Krause is being portrayed fairly uh, in what you've seen so far in the documentary? Well, you know, um, you know, once you make a commitment to being a professional and you live your life in a public life, you know, hey, you, that's up for debate. And um, but the one thing that you can't take away from Jerry is that Jerry uh, Krause in particular, um, you know, everyone with the exception of Michael Jordan, he was totally responsible for. He drafted Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant. He, you know, he drafted myself. He traded, you know, Charles Oakley for Bill Cartwright. He hired Phil Jackson. And that resulted in three championships in the early 90s. And then he did it again <laughs> in the late 90s. And uh, over an eight-year period, guys, he won six championships. And, uh, and the only two that we didn't win is because Michael Jordan wasn't there. So, you know, th those are the facts. That's, we are there to get results. And that's the one thing I don't want to ever get lost is that we achieve what we were supposed to do. And when you, when you make a commitment and you play professional sports, you have to remember it's a business. And all that matters is the results, and no one can take that away. So however you're portrayed, however you want to put it, hey, I, that's, that's up for debate. I'm not here to debate that. Um, I was there to do a job. Um, they thought I was good enough to do the job, and we all delivered on what we were supposed to do. So it speaks for itself, and however the chips may fall after that, that's up for debate. But no one can take that away from, uh, from Jerry Krause. It happened on his clock. We are all there, and uh, we all benefited from what we did together as a group, and um, he was the GM of that team. BJ, we had Will Purdue on last hour, and you know Will's doing the Bulls analyst stuff now, the pre- and post-game stuff, so he's around the organization to this day all the time, and, and he thinks that the last dance, like the fact that this has come out, is going to put a lot of pressure on the Bulls whenever the NBA resumes playing because – People might say, well, guys, it's, it's been a long time. And, you know, and you know, if it wasn't for Derek getting hurt, they'd probably go to a championship and maybe win a championship right. or the finals. But, you know, since the dynasty ended, it's it only been that one conference finals appearance with Derek many years ago. Do you think that this last dance will, will impact the current Bulls and, and maybe put some more pressure on them to win? Well, you know, as a fan, and, and certainly I'm a fan of the Bulls, and we'll always be a fan of the Bulls, right? Uh, that, that was, you know, Chicago, the city, you know, that's, that's always been a second home for me as a kid growing up in Detroit. Uh, what I can say is a person who worked in that league as an executive and played, obviously, and now working in what I'm currently doing as an agent, you know, the difficulties of building a, a team, uh, it, it's very difficult. 
even more so now than it was some 15, 20 years ago. It's very difficult, um, you know, with salary cap, players, uh, free agency, so forth and so on. So um, you, you have to get lucky. You have to get a, a, a great player, however you're going to get that player. And uh, there are only so many great players around that can actually move the needle, right? And uh, when you get a Derrick Rose, like you mentioned, you know, those players don't just come around who actually can affect your bottom line. And your bottom line is whether you win or you lose. And um, so when you see the LeBron James or you see the Tim Duncans or the Michael Jordans or, you know, the late Kobe Bryant, you have to figure out how to get those players and build around that player's talent, right? Whatever his talent may be. He may be a scorer. He may be a defensive stopper, a versatile or versatility may be his his key component and you build around those players. And then of course you have injuries. So um, it's very difficult today. And uh, in trying to work in this business, like I've been around now for 30 years, I see it. And uh, I know Chicago is a wonderful city. They have a wonderful fan base and um, every team would love to win, but it always comes down to players and it always comes down to talent. This league is built around talent. And when you see talent, to players, you have to catch them in their prime. So you got to be a little lucky in that regard, and uh, hopefully things come together for you and you can win one. But you just want a chance to compete at the highest level, and uh, it's very difficult today. BJ, as you well know, there's a legacy of uh, Chicago basketball from the high school level all the way to the Bulls and the NBA, uh, and Derek Rose is a big part of that. How's Derek doing? Has he given uh, any uh, thoughts about this documentary? Because this is his team once upon a time. Yeah, he's he's doing great, and uh, you know that he's uh, he's Chicago through and through, and you know he's a fighter, so he's always gonna figure out a way to to respond and play, and he's still enjoying playing and and playing a game at a high level. So uh, he's really settled in up there in Detroit, and uh, really looking forward to you know figuring out what's gonna happen here next. You know, now we have a. You know, with this uh, situation that we're currently we're all dealing with, and uh, like everyone else, you know, just trying to stay safe and and do the things, uh, be responsible to the communities that you're a part of. So, but he's doing well. Uh, he's seen the documentary and and some of the stories he's heard, some of the stories you know he's seeing for the very first time and uh, hearing for the very first time. So, I know he's thoroughly enjoyed it because uh, he's always so proud of Chicago and. And Chicago, as you know, is very dear to his heart because that's where he grew up. That's where he played and played for many years and uh, has very fond memories of playing there in the city of Chicago. BJ, thank you so much for giving us some time. We hope you and your family are doing well and stay safe. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. We will redraft the 1989 draft because it's fun and because we're in a pandemic. So we will redraft the 1989 draft in the NBA as we talk about the Stacey King draft. That's coming up uh, after 8.30 right here on ESPN 1000. So glad that you're with me here on this Tuesday night. Uh, 312-332-ESPN. 332-3776. Hit me up on Twitter. Twitter.com. Tweet J Hood. So the Rooney Rule in the NFL was put in place so minority candidates can get their foot in the door for interviews. Wait, 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 wait. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. When it comes to hiring practices, it's not about race. It's about the best person available for the job. Right? Right? 
The best person isn't black, though. Is that right? The best person isn't Latino. The best person isn't a woman. The best person isn't a Pacific Islander or Native American almost ever. The best person aren't any of those guys almost ever. Do you find that hard to believe or should minorities just play and not coach? That's a real question because we see from Dan Graziano from ESPN.com NFL approves Rooney rule changes, but tables minority hiring incentives. So when this story came out last week about the NFL owners approving new measures aimed at improving diversity in coach and front office hiring, but they stopped short of approving a resolution that would have rewarded minority hiring with draft pick compensation. So the NFL network reported last week that the owners were considering a proposal that would have improved teams third round draft picks by six or 10 spots. If they hired a minority candidate for vacant GM or head coaching openings, as well as other compensation for our hiring minority candidates for such positions as quarterback coach. But on today's call, which took place of the league's annual in-person May owners meetings, the resolution for involving draft pick compensation were tabled, meaning no vote was taken and the proposals could be considered at a later date. Do you know how ridiculous that sounds? You know how ridiculous that sounds? Listen, if you hire a black, we'll move you up some spots in the draft. Seriously. Do you need to have that type of incentive to hire someone of color? Think about that and let that wash over you just for a second. Because you and I have had this conversation before. Because the Rooney Rule is not going anywhere, whether it, it has teeth or does not have teeth. The conversation isn't going anywhere because the problem still exists. What gets lost in the conversation is that the Rooney rule is, it's not a referendum on white people. The Rooney rule is not to say we got to get rid of white coaches in our society. That's not what the Rooney rule is in there for. The issue isn't to rid society of white coaches. You know why? Because the majority of the league will always hire white coaches. I may never see in my lifetime half the league with black or Latino coaches as head coaches in the National Football League. And guess what? That's not the goal of the Rooney Rule. That's not the goal. The goal is to allow people of color in the door and hire them and not ignore candidates based on cultural bias. That's what the Rooney rule is put in there for. That's why this is even a thing. Because it's about getting in the door and having an interview. And then, of course, the person that's hiring, the owner of the GM, can decide from there if they feel that this candidate is right for the job. It's not based on whether you would invite them over for a foursome of golf or some fancy dinner party. It's based on business. It's just based on inclusiveness. It's based on hiring someone who can provide a different perspective to players and organizations than the norm in some cases. I can go chapter and verse and talk about the amount of head coaches that have had second and third bites at the apple, knowing that they're failures, 
but yet they're comfortable in the foursome for golf. Ah, you like to bring them over for dinner. Ah, they got great stories. Ah, they're connected here one way, shape, or form. But yet the black guy that's in the film room, the Latino that's just trying to make their way through, the woman that wants to get herself into the National Football League, they're having a hard time being able to even get in the door just to interview. Again, the Rooney rule is not to say, let's move all these white coaches out, let's, let's replace them all with black coaches. That's not what this is. Some will look at it that way, and some will hit me up on social media and say, it's about the best person. So the best person's never black or hardly ever black, ever Latino. It's, it's usually never a woman, usually never someone that's opposite of what we are usually seeing. If you are an owner or a general manager and are only comfortable based on what you know racially versus who you know with good football and business sense, you'll be rich, but you'll also be closed-minded to new ideas. It's as simple as that. Jim Trotter was on the NFL Network and talking about the diversity hiring incentives. Here's the thing that needs to be understood. Everyone is asking, where did this come from? It was from the diversity committee with the help of outsiders. So, for instance, I'm told Tony Dungy was one of the people in the working group. Ozzie Newsom was one of the people in the working group, as well as the official diversity committee that the league has. And when I reached out to some uh, to Tony Dungy this weekend and asked him if he supported this proposal, what he said to me is that he had not seen the final version. He said so he can't comment on it. But clearly, the league has reached a point where drastic measures need to be taken. And and the point Steve made, which I think is big here as well, and maybe this gets overshadowed, it's kind of an anti-tampering thing, Jim. And that is the idea that during the postseason, assistants can potentially, under this proposal, interview for, co- I'm sorry, uh, for coordinator jobs, which right now they're blocked. That's big. Yeah, you go back to the mid-90s, as far as the mid-90s, where teams could block their assistant coaches from interviewing for coordinator positions. And what do we know? Most owners want head coaches who have coordinator experience. Well, if these assistants aren't being allowed to interview for those jobs, it keeps them out of that pipeline. By eliminating this anti-tampering rule, this would allow more minorities to get in the pipeline as coordinators, which could help lead to them potentially getting head jobs. Thoughts there from Jim Trotter. He was with Andrew Siciliano and Steve Weish on the NFL Network. The very thoughtful Doug Glanville, who you see on the Marquee Network with the Chicago Cubs and an author of some terrific books over the years, Doug Glanville, the former Cub, he gave his thoughts also on NFL minority hiring incentives. There's always this challenge of balancing, making sure that you're really opening up the doors in an equitable way because there's qualified candidates across the spectrum of diversity, but at the same time, not treating it in a way that it's, it's sort of this patronizing, oh, well, we're just giving you this opportunity and people are gaming the system to make sure they get a better draft situation and not really doing it for quote unquote, the right reasons, right? Doing it in a way that you are embracing the fact that opportunity is the problem. It's not qualifications. It's not, you know, when you have opportunity and you continue to have compounding advantage to only a small segment of our society, let's say, uh, that, and especially when you're not representing your constituents in different ways, you know, whether it's the large African-American population or whatever it may be, uh, then that's, you know, that's a failing. And, and they're, see, they're recognizing that and they're trying to adjust it. But we know that, 
you have to be very judicious about how you execute this because you can go a lot of different directions that will start to create unintended consequences or consequences you didn't anticipate. And so the, the spirit is there. They, they seem to be up against the wall because they see there's a, a level of frustration. Uh, and But once again, doing it with a true belief behind it through all these teams is going to be important. And that's what's going to be highly challenging. Well said by Doug Glanville from the Marquee Network. I want you to think about this. Of course, if you are an African-American or a Latino or Asian or a woman, whatever minority group that you can think of that's out there, and you're able to get a job as a quarterback's coach or to be in a position to be a general manager, to be a head coach, to be um, in a higher level, than just in the film room we're not hired at all and you are hired based on what the owners are trying to put together that's embarrassing (laughs) it is it's embarrassing because you know that once that happens where they hire someone like you know this guy should be a head coach or this guy should be a quarterback's coach you know that's gonna be blown up like like tenfold a hundredfold like here's the first hired by the National Football League under this minority hiring incentive. And it's kind of like it's 2020. And the one thing that we know about sports, you and I as fans, you and I could be from the different side of the world. You could be from the northern suburbs and me being from South Shore, being from the South Side. But the thing that we have in common is that we're sports fans. And we can sit together at games and just be able to talk about one thing we have in common for sure, and that's the game in front of us. Football people should be able to communicate a lot better than this. It should be a lot more progressive than this. This is this does not matter what side of the aisle I'm on or what side of the aisle you're on. It's just based on what's right. The term political correctness is something that's not even a thing. It doesn't even make sense. There's not anything. There is no political correctness. There's nothing political about being correct. It's just about being correct. (laughs) And what's correct is, is that there should be an opportunity for those. Eric B. is a guy at the top of my head who's with the Kansas City Chiefs, the world champions, the Super Bowl champions, Kansas City Chiefs. Biennemi should have been able to have more opportunities to be a head coach someplace as he was the guy that was the conduit to Andy Reid to win a championship, who worked with Matt Nagy and Andy Reid to win a championship. But he couldn't be a head coach in 2020. Why is that? There's a lot of one-and-done coaches. Like Steve Wilkes, who was Arizona, done after one year. There's a lot of examples of that. But why is that? You know why it is. Is because it's about comfort. It's about fit. And everyone is not guaranteed a job. Everyone is not blessed to be able to have one of these head coaching jobs. But the idea that the best available hardly is ever someone of color is a problem. Yeah, you want to have the best person in there. The best person for the job should have to win it. But it's never someone of color, hardly. Very few in the NFL since the green rule was put in place. And these other coaches get second and third opportunities, and you know they're bad or or underachieving. That says a lot for where we are in 2020. Tales from the Hood as we redraft 1989. The NBA draft is next. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.
Chicago's home for sports. Stream ESPN 1000 easily on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. You're listening to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. What do you got there? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app. So glad you're with us here on this Tuesday night. Tales from the Hood, stories of sports, entertainment, everything else in between. Tonight, it's Tuesday night, so you know what that means. It's Redraft Tuesday for uh, Tales from the Hood as we take a look at the Stacey King draft for the Bulls, the 1989 draft. Interesting draft because this is the draft where Purvis Ellison went first to Sacramento. Also, others on this uh, draft list that were taken, we mentioned Stacey King went 6-2, the Bulls out of Oklahoma, who was a terrific player out of the Sooners uh, system. Sean Elliott was in this draft. Nick Anderson, Pooh Richardson, Tim Hardaway, Chicago Zone. Dana Barros was in this draft. B.J. Armstrong in this draft. Jeff Sanders. Um... Danny Ferry was in this draft. Blue Edwards. Sean Kemp was in this draft. Uh, there's so many interesting names that uh, pop up uh, on this list as far as uh, those that were drafted. Um, Cliff Robinson was drafted in this uh, on this particular draft. Chucky Brown. <laughs> so, <laughs> Haywood Workman, a referee, now in the NBA. Um, so, it's some great names here. Sean Davis is producing the program today, and this is where he and I will go back and forth and redraft 1989. So, Sean, I will ask you um, your thoughts. And, also, of course, we've got our guy Andre Snellings, uh, the analytics uh, expert from ESPN.com, to referee our 89 draft and give us some perspective about 89, the Stacey King draft. So, Sean, how interesting was this draft for you to look look at it was very interesting i had a lot of quandaries when i got to about six or seven and then for that 10th spot i felt like i had five or six guys that i could that i could really go legitimately throw in there at the 10th spot mm-hmm. so it should be very interesting to see how both of us laid this out okay i don't know if we're gonna have the same list now, a lot of this is behind the scenes or under the hood. This will be very interesting. And how we redraft, uh, if you are unfamiliar with the exercise, is pretty simple. We take a look at, based on what we know now, how will we redraft what's already been done in 1989. We did this for the Will Purdue draft and Scotty Pippen drafts. So this one is a Stacey King draft. All right. So uh, Sacramento is first on the board. I will go first, Sean. I now knowing what I know now out of all these players, <laughs> it'd have been fun to see Tim Hardaway with Sacramento as a number one pick in the draft. But, but I'm taking Tim Hardaway okay. in the draft. Okay. I'm going to go with. I was him. waiting for the but. Now I'm going to go to I'm gonna, Tim Hardaway is my first pick in the draft out of all these guys, right? Because and we're talking about Hardaway was part of a terrific team as we mentioned in the past with Golden State with Chris Mullins and Mitch Richmond. Did we have Mitch as the number one pick a couple of weeks ago? Yes, we did last a week. week ago. Last week, all right. So we he was the number one pick in his draft. 
and Tim Hardaway out of Chicago went to UTEP, and I just think that after his career is done, you can look at him and say, wow, you know, he was a, a great player for 13 years. So I took Tim Hardaway first in the redraft of 89. Yeah, this is very interesting. It came down to two players for me. I looked very hard at Sean Kemp because of peak Sean Kemp mm-hmm. and what I thought he brought to the table, the explosive uh, play playing down low. And what he did for the Seattle Supersonics, we were able to see it in the 96 finals against the Chicago Bulls. He quite possibly had the second best finals behind Michael Jordan in that finals. I definitely wasn't going to consider Glenn Rice because he had just beaten Illinois in the final four. So it's good, though. Good. Yeah, he was good in that final four, ultimately winning that championship for Steve Fisher. But yeah, the UTEP two step definitely goes number one to Sacramento for me. Carver's own Tim Hardaway. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I wonder what Tim would say about that. <laughs> I think you'd agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We gotta get him on the show because I think he'd agree. Okay, so second on the list to the Clippers, I, I that's where I took Sean Kemp. So, but we gotta put it in perspective though. Sean Kemp was drafted 17th in this draft out of Trinity Valley Community College. We knew that he had an explosive dunk. We didn't know he was gonna be that kind of player for the Sonics at the time, right? And he's 17th, but I'm taking him second in this draft to the Clippers. I didn't realize that he made six All-Stars and then just kind of like tanked once he got to Cleveland. He I think there. he made one more when he got to Cleveland. And that was like the 90s, what's 97 season. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was just a tank job. Of course, he blew up like Sherman Clump. And the rest was history. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> but, yes, he did. Yeah, Sean Kemp goes the Rain Man, goes number two for me as well. All right, so yep. we, we're even. All right. Now, I, I try to think about it like Kemp with the Clippers. And Donald Sterling? <laughs> that would have been very interesting <laughs> for what we know now. Yes. So as we redraft 89, Hardaway Kemp, third on my list, uh, San Antonio. Imagine. Glenn Rice on the Spurs. Yeah, I could, I can imagine that. I mean that you did, you you know, we're talking about size anyway. So Glenn Rice, and I, you know what I love? Glenn Rice played 15 years, uh, 18.3 points a game, four rebounds, uh, shot 40 percent in his career from three. Imagine Glenn Rice today. Like at the time, it was an anomaly. Like, what is this big guy on the outside shooting threes for? Imagine Glenn Rice in 2020. Glenn Rice in 2020 probably would be trying to find a good comp for Glenn Rice in 2020. Well, just like any big that can be able to knock down the three, any guy that was 6'10". You would definitely, now, his game would definitely be improved because he would be able to play the stretch four Mm -hmm. in certain teams and certain systems. Absolutely. Absolutely. He played 1,000 games in the league, averaged 40% from three, 45% shooting, as I mentioned, uh, 18.3 points a game. Um, I put, I took Glenn Rice third. I'll follow that suit, double down, and I'll take Glenn Rice third wow. as well, coming off of that national championship. Wow. Yeah, yeah I'm right, right in step with you, Hood. That's interesting. Okay. Four to Miami. This was difficult for me because there was a number of guys I could take at four. This is no slight at the others I'm going to pick here, uh, five through ten. Four to Miami. Imagine in 89, this is almost an expansion team. This is cycly, right? This is like uh, Ron Rothstein era of Miami, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so 
I took Sean Elliott there. We're right in step. Number no. four. Yeah, we are. Sean Elliott. Sean Elliott no. goes number four to the Miami Heat. I did consider one more player. I did. Because right. it just seemed like he would be a Miami Heat type player at that point guard position. But we'll wait to get to him. Wow. So we're we're this is the first time we've agreed we've been on in four step. Straight. Yeah. <laughs> so because we don't agree on this very often. So uh for perspective. Uh, uh, Purvis Ellison was first. Danny Ferry was second. Sean Elliott is third to the Spurs. Glenn Rice, four to Miami. Now we get to the Charlotte pick. Charlotte at the time took J.R. Reed, and I wrote down Nick Anderson uh, from Illinois. People don't, people sleep on Nick Anderson. Yes, man. they do. Yes, I could they be, do. Now keep in mind, I could be from Sacramento and telling you this, right? Like, this is not a, an Illinois thing by no stretch of the imagination. Because when you take a look at the size of the Orlando Magic, it, it, it hit me watching The Last Dance, right? I was like, wait a minute now. Look at the size of, like, of Shaq, Penny, Nick Anderson, Dennis Scott. Uh, those guys had some size on them. Right, and yeah. so you know all those guys. I mean, the the shortest guy was Nick Anderson at six six, but no, I thought I had Nick Anderson five. This is where we disagree. I'm gonna go ahead and throw Mookie Blaylock right in there at five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go Mookie, man. I consider Mookie, Mookie for number four. <laughs> Mookie Blaylock is very underrated, man. <laughs> very underrated. Five. Fourteen points a game, four rebounds, seven assists. And we know the defensive player he was, almost two and a half steals per game in his career. I thought Mookie Blaylock would be the perfect pick right there at number five. All right. I, I, I have really him on my did. list. I just didn't I really did. I like that. That's like my Rod Strickland pick of two a couple of weeks ago. I had him way up high. I think he um, would be able to start over Muggsy. <laughs> Uh, also in this 1989 draft, this redraft, now we get to the Bulls pick. Bulls at six. So if you're the uh, Jerry Krause, what do you do at six? The Bulls took Stacey King, and that was the right choice because Stacey was on fire from Oklahoma. And Stacey's always told me the only person that could stop uh, Stacey in the NBA was Phil Jackson. <laughs> he was the best defensive player in the NBA because he stopped him from scoring. It stopped him from playing a lot of heavy minutes. So in the, in the redraft... I looked at this list, and I took Cliff Robinson. Did you? Yeah. Okay. We differ on pick number two. This is the second pick we differ on. Well, Cliff gave you quality. I'm not saying that he would have been with the Bulls for 18 years. But Cliff put some terrific numbers together in his career. I mean, we're talking about a 43% shooter, 14 points a game, durable, lasted a long time, played until, gosh, can look at his numbers closely, but I, I thought from UConn, Kraus would definitely like Cliff Robinson. Uh, Cliff was with Portland for a, a lot of years, between 89 and 97, was with Portland. He played until he was 40 yeah, as a power forward center. Uh, and so I think that he would have been a nice piece for the Bulls. I took Cliff Robinson six. Most people don't know he was a two-time all-defensive second team. They wouldn't think of that about Cliff Robinson. 14 points, 4.8 rebounds, 2.2 assists, and one steal a game. That's pretty solid for 844 games. Yeah. So pretty I solid. Took, what do you have at six for the Bulls? At six, I'm going to give you the Jerry Krause special. He's going to be oh, overseas do all season long do in 1988. And he's going to take Vladi Divac. It's going to be right there for him. Vladi Divac. 
That number six goes to the Chicago Bulls. You knew Jerry Krause would have loved that pick. You know it. He's you know, Mr. International. You know it. You know, let me tell you something. If Divach did not get the Golden Goose and land with the Lakers, maybe Divach isn't that good. How about that? How about that for a, for a take? How about Magic and the Lakers showing him the way? Because there was some, there was a disconnect I thought from Divac at first, where he was remember he wasn't sure if he should shoot or to pass, and he was trying to get acclimated to the Lakers. Remember that one scene where he had his hands over his mouth, like thought he made a mistake, and Magic was happy. The three point play against Pip in the finals, yes. yeah, yeah, I remember that. And he buries his head in his, his chest like a little kid. Absolutely, that's true. And, and, and by the way, no shade at at, at Divac. It ends up being a terrific player in the league. Um, he was very solid at the end of his career with Sacramento, though the Chris Webber Sacramento Kings. Yeah, so that's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I took Vlad a seven to Indiana. Okay, he was a perfect pacer. Yeah, and for me, this is where Nick Anderson comes into play. Ooh, yeah, seven. I can see him playing opposite of Reggie Miller. Tough-minded. Yeah. All right, we gotta get Andre in here because we gotta get that last three picks. So we we took. Uh, so Sean took uh, Divach, which is a perfect, uh, definitely a perfect Bulls pick, uh, and I took Cliff Robinson. Vlade seven, uh, eight, nine, ten, interchangeable. Eight to Dallas. I took Dana Barros. I was a big fan of Dana Barros. Wow. Yeah, fourteen years in the league, maybe ten points a game. A lot of terrific highlights. So out of Boston College, I took Dana Barros at eight. At number eight, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take Cliff Robinson. All right. Yeah. He's yeah, my number eight pick. Nine uh, to the Washington Bullets. I took J.R. Reed. Number nine. Reed. Go ahead. Yeah, nine. I took J.R. Reed because he gave yeah, <laughs> a lot of uh, highlight dunks, right? Never averaging double digits, but he was in the league for 11 years. And I think, what, maybe five or six of them was good with Charlotte. He also ended up with the Knicks. Yes, he and did. played decent off the bench. I'm going to give you somebody that at their peak was really, really good and and was connected to my pick to the Chicago Bulls. Poole Richardson. No. <laughs> I'm going to sneak Dino Raja up in here at number nine. And look. Dino with Boston <laughs> at his peak nice. was nice. Yeah, he was. Dino, Dino was nice. Was nice. He was very nice. And everybody everybody started to pillage that Serbian and Croatian team. It was Tony. It was Vladi. Uh, Petrovic had come over. Dino. Yeah. Dino was nice at Boston. I took Mookie Blaylock 10 to Minnesota. And this is where I think this draft at 10 probably would have been a run on point guards. I mean, you had Pooh Richardson. You had Sherman Douglas. You had Dana Barrows. I'll even throw B.J. Armstrong, who was coming off of a solid season at Iowa. Sure. This is a flip of the coin, man. So you went Blue Edwards? Is that what you're saying? No, I didn't go Blue Edwards He's a nice player now, Blue Edwards. Don't play with me like that. Don't play with me. I just can't can't pick a guy named Pooh. I just can't do it. Blue Edwards was nice, though. I'm going to go ahead and put Dana Barrows in that 10th spot. Yeah, it's fine. He had a nice nice career. Yeah, he did. He did. All right. So now we so those are our ten as we redraft eighty nine. You say where's Stacy? 
Well, Stacy Stacy probably would have flourished a lot better and was able to pick up what he did from Oklahoma on a different team, just not on the championship Bulls team that was was to be. Andre Snellings covers uh, the NBA, the analytics for the NBA on ESPN.com, and the senior writer joins us now here as he laughs at our 1989 redraft. Hello, Dre. What's the deal, fellas? You know what the deal is. 89 redraft. <laughs> what do you think? All right. I'm going to hit y'all in the head with something, and this might take most of my time because i got to explain it a little bit. Sure. So, you know, y'all know I'm a numbers guy. Um, and most of the numbers people think about come from the box scores, right? You know, your points, rebounds, assists, all that stuff. But there's a branch of it called, you know, the, the category called impact stats based on plus-minus numbers, mm-hmm. which really come down to how does the team perform when a player is on the court versus either when he's not on the court or when he's replaced by, you know, another player. And – you can do math. You can do regressions to, to really try to hone that impact down to a single player. So I'm going to read you a plus-minus list from 1996. At the top of the list is Michael Jordan. Number two on the list, Mookie Blaylock. Number yeah. three on the list, Shaquille O'Neal. 1998, number one, Shaq. Number two, Zoe Morning. Number three, Mookie Blaylock. Number four, Michael Jordan. Number five, Kevin Garnett. Preach. Nineteen. 1999, Mookie's in the top five again. You know, it's like like that man, and it's interesting because with the plus-minus stats, they don't necessarily break down mechanisms. You don't really know what was it about this player that was such a high impact. But a lot of times you'll see cats that are really excellent floor generals. They, their numbers don't always show up in the box scores. Or cats that are really good on defense, their impact isn't always translated by the box scores. So, you know, Mookie... I think uh, uh, he went number five to, to, to one of you and number 10 to the other. Mm-hmm. It would have been really interesting had number 10, the Timberwolves, taken Mookie because then a couple years later, they probably don't take Stephon Marbury. They, they probably keep Ray Allen instead of trading for Stephon Marbury. And you could be ended up looking at like a Mookie Blaylock, Ray Allen, Kevin Garnett team, you know, right around those times and uh, when, when Shaq and Kobe and, and uh, you know, Tim Duncan squads were all hitting their peak. That'd have been really interesting, but but Mookie Blaylock is is a dog. Yeah, I mean, I I took nine out of my ten guys were were Vorp guys. The only person I didn't take was Pooh Richardson, who was a solid mm-hmm. player for ten years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pooh Poo was solid, and this draft was full of cats that were had really good careers. Like I was surprised that you guys' top picks were in such lockstep because you know. I, I could make arguments for just moving guys in any direction outside of Mookie. You know, Sean Kemp, you could make an argument for him, meant for him at number one just because at his peak he was so ridiculous. And his game would translate, right? That, that ultra-athletic, um, a, a big man. In this era, he probably would play center, but he would be just, you know, finishing alley-oops, you know, with the, lead, with, with the game spaced out the way it is. Um, but then you have the second half of his career, like you said, when, when, when he hit a Sherman Clump phase, and, and that wasn't there. You know, would that happen if he drafted today? You don't know. But, um, you know, UTEP two-step, I couldn't be mad at that. Glenn Rice couldn't be mad at it. Nick Anderson was interesting, too, because he was, like, you know, um, one of you mentioned him being slept on. He was really, really good for those Orlando teams who were making the finals. Um, and I, I really kind of feel like that kind of broke his career, you know, when he missed those four free throws at the end of that game in the finals against the Rockets. And the Magic would have won that game if he'd have made any one of them. I felt like his confidence wasn't ever the same after that. But before that, he was looking like an up-and-coming, you know, perennial all-star type wing player. 
Dre, tell us about uh, ESPN.com's and their top 74 players. I didn't have a major problem with the with the uh, column, um, but what was the process like trying to be able to you know, maneuver your way through a lot of those names and trying to figure out wh- who goes where? So that was the interesting thing. It was a big project with a lot of different writers involved, but the actual rankings primarily came from Kevin Pelton. You know, and, and he used his um, – he's got a, a, a numbers – based analytics uh, uh, system that he uses. And and so it was interesting. On the project, I actually did the write-ups for a handful of the guys, but I didn't get to choose the order. And so um, I've been laughing about it because my my order would have looked a little different from his. But um, it it was a really great project, though, because it went all the way back to, like, the shot clock era, you know, for, for the NBA. So I got to write about Elgin Baylor, you know, names guys that aren't really spoken of anymore you know nobody remembers that elgin baylor averaged 38 points a game for a season you know that that he was kind of the the originator of the high-flying wing um template that eventually produced michael jordan you know so that was one of the things i loved about that project was really being able to go back and and look at all these great players and, and and give them a little bit of shine yeah, that uh, column is on ESPN.com. And Pelton and I, we, we've got beef. He and I have got beef. We have beef. We have beef. And the reason why we have beef is because I didn't like his analytics column on Isaiah Thomas. I didn't like that. Mm. He, we, we, he and I have a problem because, you know, it's clear Isaiah, whether or not Michael liked him or not, should have been on that dream team. And that would have been every guy on that dream team would have been a Hall of Famer. But they have beef. Mm-hmm. But then Kevin made this point like, well, you saw the numbers – you know, trailing off for Isaiah, the injuries and all that. And just like, he could just rode the bench and still been part of a, a a great team, a dream team. And all those guys were Hall of Famers. But now they brought Christian Leitner in instead. So we have beef. Yeah. I mean, the thing we, we, we've, um, you know, Isaiah, a couple of, like you just pointed out, even if his numbers declined, going into 92, Magic wasn't in the NBA. You know what I'm saying? I don't think Bird was in the NBA anymore. You know, his back had forced him out, too. So I don't buy that Isaiah being not at his peak in 92 is an argument against him because that wasn't how they picked that team anyway. Um, And then just as far as analytics go, like I was just talking about, a lot of the analytics that people talk about or that are discussed are based on the box score. And scoring efficiency is one of the biggest elements of that. So guys like Isaiah Thomas or Allen Iverson, don't necessarily do as well in those efficiency-based approaches. I I respect the efficiency-based approaches. I just I, I don't necessarily always agree with their conclusions. And I think if you would have had plus-minus stats for the 80s, there's a good chance that the Zeke would have looked a lot better there than than by trying to evaluate his uh, true shooting percentage. Dre, as always, we appreciate you being our referee and taking a look at some of these redrafts, and uh, we'll do it again real soon. I appreciate you coming on as always. All right. Thanks for having me. It's Andre Snellings uh, from ESPN.com. Does a great job as far as breaking down the analytics and the numbers with the NBA with us here on Under the Hood. All right, coming up, we'll hear from Jerry Bembry from The Undefeated. His thoughts about uh, the uh, Last Dance documentary. He wrote some great, interesting columns from TheUndefeated.com regarding uh, The Last Dance. We'll get to Jerry coming up next right here on WMVP Chicago. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.